2 Samuel chapter 22. Let's open our Bibles there. We're going to continue in our study through this wonderful book and all that God has uh, for us. As you're making your way there, I'm just going to jump right into it. And, you know, last week, uh, as we started in chapter 22, we were reminded that these last four chapters of 2 Samuel are not chronological. Um, that the last four chapters are just different events taken of, uh, just during various times of David's rule and reign, just snapshots and focusing on different things that happen. And so what we're focusing on here in chapter 22 is actually a song of praise that David composed. And what we're looking at, we're focusing on David's worshipful witness. And we entitled the message uh, l- last week, Can I Get a Witness? And, uh, and this is really a continuation of that. And so what's going on here? David is just testifying of God's faithfulness to him. Last week, there were three things we were focusing on in regards to God's faithfulness. We focused on the fact that God's faithfulness is experiential, uh, that it's relational, and that it's powerful. And today, as David continues praising the Lord, again, we're focusing on the lessons of God's faithfulness in our lives. I read an article this week, it was talking about women and insecurity, and it was talking about the things that, that uh, they struggle with, and, and actually I vetted it a little bit. I, I'm like, Brenda, here's what this article is saying. There was a particular sentence in this article that I thought, wow, that's, that's good, I'm going to share that. And I thought, well, I better run it past the wife, because <laughs> I'm not a woman, and, and I don't even self-identify as a woman, so you know, <laughs> I, need to, <laughs> I need to ask my wife about that. And so I'm like, hey, baby, you know, what, does this ring true? And she says, you know, it, it absolutely does ring true for many women. Not for all, but it rings true for many. And so the article's on insecurity. Here's the, here's the sentence, the quote. It says, there is a six-letter word so crippling to the heart of a woman that it can crush you in a second with just a whisper of it. It's the word enough. Am I pretty enough? Am I smart enough? Am I good enough? Am I ever going to be loved enough? And this, according to this author, was just this great struggle. And, you know, men actually have their own doubts that they struggle with too. You know, am I man enough? Am I going to be tough enough? Am I going to be strong enough? But really, the big thing, guys, can I provide enough? Man, that is your constant companion. I know, guys, it keeps, that thought keeps them up at night. A friend of mine was in sales. He said, you know, the, the really crappy thing about sales is that every day you wake up, you're looking for a job, basically. You know, trying to close the next deal, trying to close the next deal. He goes, it's a tremendous amount of pressure, especially for a man whose who's burden is to provide. And so these doubts, they, they bleed into our relationships. And in fact, they bleed into our relationship with God. Is God going to be enough? And here's the truth. When you ask the question, am I pretty enough? Am I good enough? Am I strong enough? Am I going to be able to provide enough? Here's the thing is that you are never going to be good enough. And so that's why it's imperative that we run to the one who is enough. And that's exactly what we see David doing here. David uh, is, is praising, he's worshiping the Lord, and, and, he, and he's praising the one who is enough. Now, we'll pick it up in, in context in verse 17. And here's what he says. He says, as he's praising God, he's, chapter 22, verse 17, he sent 
from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Now, first point, if you're taking notes, you want to write it down, you could write down, God delivered David. And there's a lot to see here in God's deliverance of him. Now, last week, if you were here, you saw that that word, uh, they confronted me there in verse 19. That that word confronted, it's, it's in the Hebrew, it's a, a PL verb stem. And so what that means is that it's intense action. In other words, they confronted me. It wasn't, it wasn't that you know, they mildly confronted me. No, this was monumentally, overwhelmingly, they confronted me. You ever been on a plane and, and maybe, you know, you're working or something or you kick the, the back of the seat, you know, inadvertently and somebody up in front will sort of give you the half turn, right? Brenda and I were on a flight to, uh, to London and there was this, this, this family with their kids and apparently the, the one kid was kicking the back of the seat and the people in front of, they didn't give them the half turn, they jumped around and just started, I thought they were going to get in a fist fight on the plane. They're screaming at them and, and, and all, and I'm like, whoa, man. Now, that's kind of more like what David is talking about here. He didn't, he didn't get the half turn. He got the full turn. They were full court press. They, these guys, this enemy was going after me. But David said in response to that, he says that God sent from above. He says God took me. He drew me out. He delivered me. And again, in the Hebrew, this is in the hyphil verb stem, different uh, then the PL verb stem and the high field verb stem basically indicates that God did this without any help of David whatsoever. Thank you very much. It was entirely God's work. See, the trap of religion so often is we get into the place to where I have to do good and I have to try harder. And, and so there's this tremendous burden. There's this tremendous pressure of, hey, what am I going to do to, to, to get me out of this fix? I think of Jesus going into the town of Nain in Luke chapter 7. And as he's going into this town, the funeral procession coming out, and Jesus is moved with compassion. Here's this mom. She's lost everybody. Her son was the only one left. He's now dead. They're going to bury him, and she's just losing it. And Jesus is moved with compassion, and he walks up to the the coffin, and loose paraphrase, he's like, get up, Jack, and, and raises this guy from the dead. And everybody's just like, you know, here he goes. He just does this. But put yourself, a lot of people, that, you know, they're trying on a religious treadmill, trying to raise themselves up, trying to deliver themselves. The enemy, you know, the Bible says the enemy is like a prowling lion, you know, looking around for who he's going to, who he's going to devour. And, and there's, you know, a lot of people that, you know, are, are being, assailed by an enemy and they need to be rescued like this guy. I mean, what could this guy do for himself to set him free? What could this guy do for himself to, to raise up out of that coffin? Answer is nothing. He's dead, you know? And the Bible says that you are dead in trespasses and sins and, and that the only hope for you is to be rescued. We all need a rescuer person in the work of Jesus Christ. And so this is what happens is that even though David is overwhelmingly confronted by his enemies, hey, listen, God delivered David. And that deliverance of God, it goes well beyond salvation. 
It goes into our day-to-day situation. We get ourselves into trial and circumstances and and hardships, and we think, oh man, what am I going to do to get out of this thing? Because listen, we're physical people. We live in the physical world. We have physical problems. And so a lot of times it's like, well, okay, so I have to work out what I'm going to do. And it's very difficult for me to trust that God is going to work through this situation, that he's going to take care of me. And so David says, with this in mind, verse 20, as we continue, he says, he, the Lord, also brought me out into a broad place. Now, if you want to circle that phrase, broad place, and nearby, you could write to enlarge or to make room, because that's literally what that word means. It's the, it's the Hebrew word, rakab. And, and what this, is, this word, the same word, rakab, is used in, in Proverbs chapter 18, where we read there, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. See, remember, David has spent years in tight places. He, you know, was there, you know, at his father's house. Samuel the prophet gets the call from God, go down to Jesse's house, pick one of his kids to be the new king of Israel because, as it turns out, Saul is not... <laughs> not so much my guy anymore. So need to replace him, go down to the house of Jesse. So he goes down there, goes searching through all his kids. Nope, not him. Nope, not him. Nope, not him. He's like, dude, you got any other kids? And he's like, well, yeah, I got the runt of the litter, David. He's out stinking up the field with the sheep. I mean, you know, there's him. Like, we'll bring him in. So they bring David in and the Lord says, rise and anoint him. He's the one. Hey, cool. So he anoints David. Hey, you're the future king of Israel pours this whole horn of oil over him and, you know, symbolic of the Spirit, Holy Spirit and all this stuff. And, oh, this is great. And what happens after that? Nothing. Nothing. He goes right back out. His dad's like, get back out there with the sheep. And, and so now his brothers, they're fighting in the battle and all, but David's with the sheep, which was a really lowly job. Shepherds were kind of despised in that, in, in that you know, Day and, and error, they were, they were pretty much the, the low lives of life. So for this father to put his kid out there, he, he you know, doesn't think that much about him. And it's not until David goes and fights Goliath that things start to turn around for him. And now it's like, oh, okay, hey, God's gift is making room for you now. You get to, you get to go out and you get to do that much more. Awesome. Until... All the girls start praising David and Saul gets jealous and goes after him. And so now David's on the run for his life. And where is he? He's in tight places. He's hiding in caves. He's dodging spears. And and what happens is that God prescribed that for David because he was testing him and trying him and preparing him. We talked about this last week. You, you, You want a testimony as a Christian, but you don't get a testimony without a test and without a moaning. I mean, you go through times of testing and moaning and trial can I get an amen? Somebody's there right now, right? And so we go through these difficult times. So what happens is David understands this, but now what he's saying is God brought me out. My gift made room for me. Now, let me just say this, not in my notes, but let me just kind of take a, a detour here and say this, that a lot of times I'll have people that'll come and talk to me and they'll say, hey, listen, I want to know what God's will is for my life. What, is, what does God want from me? And I will tell them, look, the quickest path to knowing God's will is understanding how he's gifted you. How has he gifted you? See, because the Bible speaks of spiritual gifts that God has given to us. Um, and, and God has given gifts to man. 
you know, the greatest gift, obviously, is salvation through Jesus Christ and, and so on, and you're the hope of eternal life. But over and above that, God gives to us spiritual gifts. Some people have the, the spiritual gift of giving. Some people have the gift of teaching. Some people have the gift of mercy. Some people, you know, have, have uh, you know, the gift of serving. Whatever it is, God's gifted you. And so the, the clue is to understand how has God gifted you and then go out and be faithful to use that gift. Look, if I buy you a gift, I don't want you to re-gift it. You know, I don't want to see it served up at some white elephant gift exchange. Oh, there's a, that's, didn't I buy you that last year? No, that, you thought you bought that for me, but you know, whatever it is. No, I, if I buy you a gift, hopefully some thought and effort went into it and I bought it for you because I want you to use the gift right? And, and so God gives you gifts. And I, and, and I say gifts plural because, yeah, maybe you have one primary gift, but, but people have a multitude of gifts if you start, stop and think about it. And so God will give you this gift and he expects you to use it. And as you exercise it, as you're faithful to use that gift, listen, that gift will make room for you. I tell Bible college students, hey, listen, Just, you know, hey, Pastor Chad, I think I've been called to be a pastor. Great. Go serve the Lord. Be faithful with what he's given to you and see what doors God opens. Now, the Bible says, as you're faithful in little, God will make you faithful in much. But what I'm seeing today, a lot of times, is that people, hey, you know, I want want to do this. You know, hey, I want to preach. Okay, cool. Why don't you start teaching children's ministry? Oh, no, God hasn't called me to that. He's called me to preach, you know, at a church, you know, a thousand people. You ain't going to start there. Because God wants to see how you're faithful in tight places. He wants to mold and shape you in these tight places. And so David was in tight places by God's strategic design. And God is molding him. He's shaping him. He's testing him. He's trying him. And then it's in that tight place where God now, as he's faithful in it, he brings him out and he makes room for him. Again, that phrase brought me out. It's a hypho verb. It emphasized God's work, not David's work. In other words, David's not a self-made man. If you took his iPod, started listening to the radio, you know, the songs that he listens to, you know, I, I did it my way. It's not going to be on his top 10, right? He's not a self-made man. He didn't, his mindset wasn't, I didn't earn victory. His mindset wasn't, you know, I achieved the throne. His mindset wasn't, hey, I had a five-year plan for my life. You want to be a good steward? You want to have plans? You want to have goals? Great, but have them with an open hand. Because what happened in David's life was that God was the one who did it. And here's the, here's the, the image that I would give. It's like a baker baking a cake, okay? And, and in this metaphor, we're the cake. What's the cake's job? Nothing. He just needs to sit in the pan, right? He needs to sit in the oven. It's the baker that does all the work. We just need to sit in the oven. And that's tricky, isn't it? Because what is the oven? It's hot. I want out of here. And a lot of times God will place us in a hot cooking place, in the hot cooking environment, to where it's like, hey, get me out of this tight space. I want to be, you know, in the broad place. Well, you know what? You need, you're not done. You need to cook a little more. Romans 12.1, Paul talking. He says, I beseech you, brethren, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies 
a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, it's been said, you know, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps getting off the altar. And, you know, it's one thing, you know, you slaughter the thing, you stick it up there, it ain't going nowhere, it's, it's dead, it's on the altar offered up. But you and I are a living sacrifice. We have to work out our salvation daily with fear and trembling. So we, as living beings, free, created in the image of God with a free will, we need to place ourselves on the altar of God, and then when he turns up the heat and says, you just sit still and let me cook you, we have to endure. Now, it's, it's easier said than done. Jesus said this. He said, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. But so often what happens when we're in that place of abiding, when it's a tight place, if it's an uncomfortable place, Man, we'll get, to, we'll get to the thing where it's like, look, I'm done sitting around. I got to do something. I got to do something, man. Now, I appreciate this to a certain extent. I always, one of my favorite sayings is, look, God's not going to steer a parked car. And, and so a lot of people in their faith are just sort of like, well, I'll just sit here and, you know, let go and let God. But then they don't do anything, you know. They kind of shuck their respos. And I say, you know, why don't you put feet on your faith and just start stepping out? But sometimes God steers you to a parking place says, let's just park you right here and let's turn up the heat. And so in that place, what do we do? Well, I think about Peter. Acts chapter one, Jesus has, has you know, he's risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. He told his disciples, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift my father promised you. And, and so what is that gift? It's the giving of the Holy Spirit which is amazing for us to consider because here these disciples were the graduates of the most prestigious Bible college that has ever existed. It had one graduating class and it was them. They went to Emmanuel University, stopped by Jesus Christ himself for three and a half years and Jesus says on their graduation, you're not ready. You need to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, and, and we, we need to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know, that, that old story about the guy who goes down to the, to the store to get the, to get the saw. He buys this newfangled saw. The guy promises it'll cut six cords of wood a day. And, and he goes home eagerly, you know, using the saw. He comes back the next day. He's completely dejected, totally not sold on the product. He's angry. He goes, look, I used this. I worked, I worked eight hours yesterday and I cut less than a third of a cord of wood. You said I cut six cords of wood. I cut less than a third. What is, something's wrong with this thing. The guy goes, I'm so sorry. Let me give you a replacement. Saw so gives him a new saw. Guy comes back the next day. He's even more angry. He says, look, I cut even less wood yesterday and I worked, I worked longer. He goes, man, there is something wrong. Let's go out back. Let's see what's wrong with this saw. So the guy, the, the shop owner takes the saw. He's like, Rrr. God's like, what's that noise? <laughs> a lot of us operate in that way in our lives to where it's like, I'm, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, but I do it outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus tells his disciples, look, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. So, so don't leave Jerusalem. You go pray. You go wait until I pour out my Holy Spirit. Well, Peter, if you know Peter, he, he doesn't wait well. Peter is impulsive. And, and he's not a guy that sits around. And so he's there, and all of a sudden he goes, I know what I can do. I can wait here, but there's something I can do right now. And he says, hey, guys, we got to replace Judas. 
Judas betrayed the Lord and he went out and hung himself and his guts all spilled out and, and it turns out one, two, three, four, eleven. Okay, there's supposed to be twelve. We need to replace him. So let's do let's do this. Why don't we? Uh, who can we nominate here? Who who who's the, who fits the bill? Who who can we see that makes the most sense that he should be you know an apostle? And so there's a couple of candidates that they selected. Right? And so, so as they select these two candidates, they're like, okay, these are the guys. Now, it's a guy named Joseph and, and a guy named Matthias. And so they go to God and they're like, okay, which of these two do you want to replace Judas? Now, who did God want to replace Judas? Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus. And what was Saul of Tarsus doing during the time of Acts chapter 1? He's killing Christians. So you're looking for a replacement for the apostles and you're like, oh, well, should we pick Joseph or should we pick Matthias? They're, they're at every prayer meeting and they're, or should we pick Saul of Tarsus? Who, what, what did he do last? Oh, he killed a couple of guys who profess faith in Christian. Yeah, let's nominate him. He would never do that in a million years. Strength of the flesh leading the Holy Spirit. And how would you know between the two? You wait. And they said, wait for the outpouring of my Holy Spirit. And Peter goes, I'm not going to wait very well. Hey, I know what let's do. Let's replace Judas. And he names a couple of guys and they present them to the Lord. And apparently the Lord doesn't, doesn't speak, you know, very clearly to them. So what do they do? They cast lots. They draw straws. Only, one and only time you see it in the New Testament where they draw, cast lots, draw straws. Oh, the lot falls too. Anybody know? Matthias, you know, you, you, I had to look that up this morning. <laughs> Why? Because you never hear from him again. It's the one and only time these guys are mentioned in Scripture, which leads us to believe that they weren't, they weren't God's choice at all. They were, in fact, man's choice. And what's happening is that man is, is not sitting and waiting for God to do what God wants to do. And, and see, God didn't tell him to do that. He told him to abide. Well, this week, uh, Mark Carter, one of our members, posted on his Facebook a quote that I'm like, he got it out of his one-year Bible. It was in the, the, the margin of the study notes. I'm like, well, that fits perfectly. That's exactly what we're talking about here. It says this, don't allow impatience to turn into disobedience. When you trust God and are patient, you get to see God come through, and this strengthens your faith. When you know what God wants, follow his will, even if it means waiting. Don't you hate that? Some of you are in that place of waiting. Hey, when you, you follow his will, even if it means waiting, when God fulfills his promise, you'll have a story to tell and you'll have faith to show for it. Point of application, just to take a walk with this week, are there any areas of your life right now where God's telling you to wait? And what's your job? To wait. Cook there in that place. Well, not only does David praise God for his work, and that's the idea here, Look, God, you did this work. God, you delivered me. I didn't have to engineer it. I just, I just had to wait upon you. I just to wait for you. You delivered me. And so not only does, God, does David praise God for his work of deliverance, but now he also praises him for his motive of deliverance. And that brings us to the second point. If you want to write it down, God delighted in David and he rewarded him. God delighted in David and he rewarded him, chapter tw- or verse 20, I'll just read the whole thing again. He says, as we continue, he says, he also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he, here it is, delighted 
in me, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God, for all his judgments were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanliness uh, in his eyes. Okay? And he says, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. This is called a, a hithphale verb, and it's a reflexive action on God. In other words, hey, someone's merciful and he in reflex is merciful to them. He says, with a blameless man, again, a, a hithphale verb, with a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will, hithphale verb, show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. Now, this is a very Jewish train of thought, and we're going we're gonna to get into this again in a minute, but it's a very Jewish train of thought that basically says, hey, cause and effect. As I'm righteous, God's going to be righteous to me. As I'm merciful, God's going to be merciful uh, to me. But what we discover and learn as Christians is that God, this, this hithvale verb, this reflexive action of God, hey, his, his reflex also is even when I'm faithless, to remain faithful because he can't deny himself. See, God is, is his, his natural reflex is one of love. His natural reflex with you and with me is to delight in us and to, and to want to give good gifts to his children. That's God's natural way. And so he says, um, uh, you will save, verse 28, you, uh, you will save the humble people but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. And so what we have here as we look at this, we're seeing God delight in David. We're seeing God reward David. And when he says there in verse 20, that the last half of verse 20, that he delighted in me, that phrase, it means literally to delight in, to be pleased by, to take pleasure in. Here's, here's what I want you to get from that, is that you have a father in heaven who absolutely is crazy about you. He delights in you. He loves you. And some of you, you know, that, you know, rings sort of difficult to hear. Because like I said, you know, the enemy works on us and he, he brings condemnation. He, he, he's the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says. And so we can get to a place where, where we, don't, we don't believe that, where we're not going to receive that, where we're going to struggle with, is God really going to be faithful to love me? Because I understand this concept of God loves me, that God loves us, but, but, I, but I haven't exactly been living a life that, that is, is that that pleasing to God. When, when my kids were young, um, Brenda had this business that she was doing and um, we had converted the garage and for her and this is where she, you know, her main place of business and so we, we painted it all real nice and we put in, the glued down this carpet in the garage. We basically converted the space and we just finished it. It was gorgeous. 
and uh, we had some friends that came over, um, a new couple that we had met, and we were striking up a friendship with them. It was Dave and Pam Shepherdson. He's ended up being a lifelong friend. He pastors Calvary Chapel Nuevo now. But at the time, it was the first time we'd ever had them over. They come over. They got three kids. They have the mirror family of mine. They, you know, they, they got three kids. We got three kids. Uh, you know, two girls and a boy, same ages and so on. So they come over, and, the, and we, we're like, oh, let's let the kids play in the, in the garage. It's all nicely outfitted and so on. So the kids are out there playing. They're having a ball. And we're, we're having a discussion with Dave and Pam. It's nice, a really good time. All of a sudden, we're like, it's too quiet. So we go out in the garage. Well, the kids had found the paint. Ten gallons of paint. And there's like five on them and five on the floor. Just, it's everywhere. Now, did, did daddy lose his lid? Maybe, maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit, but look, the, the issue with my kids is that they're still my delight. They're still my joy. They drive me crazy sometimes, you know? And it, it's like, you know, I, sometimes I, I feel like, you know, that comedian who said, look, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out. And it doesn't make any difference to me because I'll make another one look just like you, you know? <laughs> and and sometimes, sometimes we get that attitude to where we feel... But you know what? There are kids and we love them. And look, you're God's child and he loves you. And this is David's point. He says, look, he delivered me because he delighted in me and he rewarded me. And, and the thing is, is, and we, because a huge trap of the enemy is that, is that Satan will tempt you to sin and then he'll jump the fence and he'll condemn you about your sin. I was invited this last week to speak at Calvary Chapel School of Ministry and they asked me to teach on spiritual warfare. And I was explaining this concept to them. I took them to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're told in Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the thing is, is it says, Paul says, look, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That word wiles, it means deceitful trickery. And this is what Satan does. He deceives you and he tricks you and he's a student of you and he knows how you tick. And so what happens is that he employs these tactics and these tricks. And his primary tactic is to get you to a place where you fall into sin, and then he jumps on and piles on and gets you to doubt God's love for you. In that place of guilt and shame and remorse, he doesn't help it at all by saying to you, look, you really think God's going to be faithful to forgive you? You really think that God's going to delight in you now? God doesn't delight in you now. Some of you, you're in that place right now where you feel like, well, you know, I understand that God delights in his children, but he's not delighted in me. Maybe right now, you know, you've got the metaphorical equivalent of the 10 gallons of paint everywhere in your life, and God's not that thrilled with what you've done, but he delights in you. And you need to hear that because the enemy wants you to, to doubt that. Listen, here's what Paul told the Romans. He said, for I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing 
listen, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, a lot of commentators hear as David goes through this. Hey, he rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands. He's recompensed me because I've kept the ways of the Lord and so on. And as he talks about all the causative reasons why God has done this, a lot of commentators go, well, clearly David wrote this before he fell into sin with Bathsheba. Clearly he wrote this before he killed Uriah the Hittite to cover up the murder of the adultery with Uriah's wife. Clearly David could never have written these things before. And again, it's a very Jewish train of thought. See, because what happened was God had given his laws to the Jewish people. And he'd commanded them that they, as long as they walked obediently according to his law, that they would be in right relationship with him. But God gave the law to them, the New Testament tells us, as a tutor. He gave the law to them as a tutor, what? To show them their need for a savior. Because the law was never intended that we should be able to keep it. The law was intended to show you that it's impossible for you to meet up to God's standards. Because God is perfect and you're not. So, So why God gave the law was so that you would come to the end of yourself And then he instituted this sacrificial system to where when inevitably you would sin, then you would have to make a sacrifice. And it was all a picture and a type pointing forward to the the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. So the lesson was always, you're a blow-it, you're a loser, and and you need a savior. Because you're you're the man in name that's in the coffin. You just haven't gotten the memo yet. The Bible says, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. And the enemy lies and says, hey, live it up, and this is the life, and you don't realize that you're heading for a cliff, right? And so God says, look, I'm going to give you the law, my standards, so that when you break it, and, and the enemy starts telling you what a loser you are, then you can, and Jesus said, hey, when you're going to court, agree with your adversary quickly, Okay, so your adversary, the enemy, comes and starts condemning you, and you need to go, you know what, you're right, I am all those things. Have mercy on me, God. You're Savior, you're loving, you're forgiving, and I'm going to cry out to you. And so, so the issue here is that we need to understand, did David write this before his sin with Bathsheba? It's possible he did. But we know that it occurs in multiple locations in the Bible, and so he sang it on multiple occasions, and no doubt these words were every bit as true after his sin with Bathsheba as they were before his sin with Bathsheba. After his murder of Uriah the Hittite as they were before. How can we possibly say that? Well, we can say that because of the events that happened in 2 Samuel chapter 12. As a matter of fact, uh, we've got, we got a minute. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And here's, here's what went down. David, he committed the sins. And thought he got away with it, but he was miserable. David's own testimony. He's just miserable. He's like de- he's just like a you know bag of bones walking around. He's just he just feels this this condemnation and this and this conviction of his sin. 
So God sends Nathan the prophet to come to David to call him on his sin. Nathan tells him this story to catch him. And basically he says, look, hey, here's the story, man. I I need you ruling on something, king. I got this guy. He's got like, you know, more sheep than he knows what to do with. But he had some visitor come visit him and he didn't want to slaughter any of his own sheep. So he went to his neighbor and he took the only sheep he had. I mean, this was like a pet that used to sleep in bed with them and everything. And he, and he took, you know, my, my little dog Bentley, he's like slept in our bed with us since, you know, he first came into the house. I didn't want him when we first got him, but now it's like, you know, I'm going to bed. I'm like, where's Bentley? You know, and just, you know, and just, he's just such a cute little guy and he's just all up there and, you know, and then he snores like a warthog and Brendan and I are there and he's just all in all his glory laying on his back, just, you know. And so this guy takes this guy's little Bentley and slaughters him and serves him up to his, his neighbor and David's a shepherd. So he hears this story, he's like, kill him, just kill him dead. What a dirt bag. And Nathan goes, you're the man. Because what happened when he ain't the man, you're the man who stole some other guy's little, one little sheep. Because here you are, David, you're the king. You got it large and fat. And all of a sudden you see some guy and his, and his one and only wife and you took her from him. And then you killed him to cover it up. Here's what David says in verse 13. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And David said, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now that phrase, put away your sin, it literally means Passover. And I could go off on a tangent on that, but you remember the story of Passover. The angel of death is coming and who, who was saved? Those who had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their house. And the angel of death passed over. And what, the, what Nathan the prophet is telling David, hey, listen, you know what? God's put your sin away from you. He's forgiven you. He's cleansed you. So all of these things that David is saying when he says, you know, back in in chapter 22, that the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands and recompense me for, for, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. Look, he didn't do any of those things, but listen, you and I, we, God sees us. You pick up a piece of colored glass and you look through it. Everything that you look at is gonna take the color of that glass. So you pick up a brown beer bottle glass and you look through it, everything looks brown. Pick up a green glass, everything looks green. God sees you through Jesus Christ. And so he sees you as holy, he sees you as pure, he sees you as righteous. None of those things that you are, but you are that in Christ. Hidden in Christ Jesus, we're cleansed, our sin is put away. And so we're talking about God delighting in and God rewarding David. And David would say, he could say, I, I'm a murderer, I'm an adulterer, I'm unworthy. And God would say, yes, but you confessed your sin. And the Bible says if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And some of you need to be reminded of that today. That if you confess your sin, God will forgive you. You will be clean, you'll be right, you'll be pure because Satan has a field day with you to get you to a place. Because listen, if he can get you to the place to where you go, there's no hope for me. Or you say, oh, God is mad at me and I gotta do some religious thing to re-earn a right standing with God. He just further marginalizes you from the Father who loved you and delivered you and who, who delights in you. And God wants to have fellowship with you today. And you can have that today by simply receiving what God has for you. For some of you, that means confessing that you're a sinner and that you need a savior. 
For others of you, what that means is just remembering what God in Christ has done for you and say, you know what? My feelings and my emotions are because of my sin. God, have mercy on me. Forgive me. And know it that he's forgiven you, that he's cleansed you. And do what God then told the girl caught in adultery. Hey, women, where are your, where are your accusers? Well, they've all gone, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And maybe that's God's word for some of you here today. And so this is the issue here where, where, where David is at, at. He just confessed and he repented of his sin. Now I think of the parable that Jesus told about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. They're there praying. They went up to the temple to pray. And, and you know, he, he tells this parable. The parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so he picks, you know, the hero, which should be the religious leader, and he picks the dirtbag that everybody was the most reviled person in all society, the tax collector, something's never changed. And so he takes these two guys and he says, now they go up to pray. And here's how, you know, the Pharisee, this religious leader, here's how he prayed. He, he stood and he prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I'm, I'm awesome, God. Thank you for making me so awesome. And the tax collector standing afar off, he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said, this man went down justified. The best definition of that Greek word justified is this, just as if I'd never sinned. And how could it be that just as if he'd never sinned? It's that, that scripture, 1 John 1, 9, one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that word confess, it means to agree with God. Agree with God that what you did is sinful. Agree with God that he's paid the penalty for the sin, past, present, future, that there's nothing that you can do to be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Listen, God's gone to great lengths to redeem us. The Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Listen, that word mediator, there's one mediator between God and man. It means this, one who intervenes between the two to make or restore peace or friendship. Listen, let me ask you a simple question. Do you have peace with God? Do you have friendship with God? Because you can have that today. And here's what Paul says to the Romans. He says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even, listen, at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Here's what this means. It means right this second, right this moment, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the throne of God, the position of the advocate, the place the defense attorney would, stay, would stake, right hand of the throne, 
And he's there praying for you by name right this moment. That's what this means. Maybe you've wandered. Maybe you think you've done too much. Maybe you think it's too late. And I would tell you today, listen, the Bible says different, God loves you.